We're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts this morning. Uh, We've been talking about Pentecost for the last few weeks, and we're coming to the conclusion of that, so we're in chapter 2. We're going to be picking up with verse 36 and reading through verse... 47. Now let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together uh, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceedings to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Uh, We've been studying Pentecost now for the last few weeks. Uh, And what we come to now is basically the, the result of the things that have taken place before this. Peter was preaching. Remember the, the, the sermon of Peter. And the last words that he prayed in that sermon were these, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, Peter ends his sermon by laying the full weight of the trial and tribulation of Christ squarely upon the shoulders of those who are listening to him. You did this. Your sin did this. Is he doing it to make them feel bad? Is he doing it to evoke some other kind of response from them. I would say he's doing it to evoke some other kind of response. And what Peter wants more than anything else is for these people to repent. This is one of the principal and primary purposes of this whole sermon that he's been preaching, and that is to draw the people to the point of repentance. Because we understand that coming to Jesus means a lot of things, but one of those, and one of the most important things, is repenting of our sin. 
These people refused Christ before. They denied Jesus before. But Peter hasn't given hope on them. And by the power of the Spirit speaking through him and in him, he presents Christ to them once again. Hoping and praying that it will lead them to repentance. How would you define preaching? Someone asks you what it means for someone to preach. What do you think you would say to them? What I would say this is that it is a form of teaching. It is. It's a form of teaching. So there's teaching, learning that takes place when sermons are preached. But I would say to you that the big difference between preaching as teaching and other types of teaching is that, that preaching always has as, as its goal to evoke a particular response from the people who hear what is said. Not to leave you where you were, but to move you along. Preaching demands a response from the people who listen. The people who hear what is said. Every sermon ends with a call to action of some sort. In other words, doing something because or as a result of what you have just heard. And what I want to say this morning is that perhaps the very most common action that is required is repentance. That there's a sense in which almost every sermon that you will ever hear preached in your whole lifetime there's a sense in which it is a call to repent yet one more time. Why? We've talked about the Holy Spirit a lot more lately than we typically do. And one of the things I want to say this morning is this. is This is hope, the Holy Spirit leading us to the place where we need to be. In order that we can move ahead. There's something that has to take place before we will repent. And one of the, there are many things actually that have to take place before we can come to the point of repentance. But one of the primary and most important ones is, is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, that should encourage you. And that, that means that whenever you're listening to a sermon and, and, and the burden of your sin falls upon you yet one more time and you're convicted of it, that is the Holy Spirit moving and bringing you to that place. It's not something you're doing on your own. So let me just say this morning, whenever you really fall under the conviction of your sin, you're falling under the conviction of your sin because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and bringing you to that point. Sometimes we classify sins into two different categories. Sometimes we say there are sins of commission and other times there are sins of omission. 
Commission means things that we actively commit. In other words, crimes, in essence, that we commit. Other times, we commit sins of omission. In other words, we don't do things that we know we should do. In other words, sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. Other times, we don't do things we ought to do. Those to whom Peter is preaching this, this earmark, landmark sermon are guilty of both. First of all, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. They sent up omission. And they also murdered Jesus. A sin of commission. When they heard, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted of their sin. They were convicted of their part in the story of Jesus. And I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that repentance is always the appropriate response from us whenever we are convicted of our sin. The Greek word for repentance is metanoeo. It literally means in the company of or with understanding or discernment. In other words, it's a knowledge that comes to us through perception of wrongdoing on our part. But it's always with the understanding that we have done something wrong in the eyes of God. Conviction of our sin is the first step in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you have experienced exactly what we're talking about here. And if you haven't, then maybe you ought to think a little bit about some things. We have to be convicted of our sin before we ever have any idea of the greatness of our need for Christ. And I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that conviction of our sin is not a one-time action. It's not a one-time activity. It's something that takes place on a regular basis throughout our walk with Christ. Conviction of sin remains a significant part of our picture. 
Sometimes I think we're a lot more concerned about the sins of other people than we are our own. You know, it's so easy to look around. You can always find people doing things that you know are wrong and, and this, that, and the other and, and whatever. But, but, but the biggest problem that I have is Keith. The biggest problem that Joan has is Joan. The biggest problem that Donna has is Donna. Before we can receive a Savior, we must first realize that we actually need one. And this is what's taking place in this congregation of Jewish people who, by the way, Jesus or Peter is just accused of actually being the ones who killed Christ. They were part of it. Let's remember this, that even today, apart from Christ, our very best works are like filthy rags. He is what makes our works acceptable to God. We don't. There's a difference between where we are today and where we were before. The difference is this, is that before, sin had a stranglehold on us. One that we were completely unable to break free of on our own, even if we wanted to. Sometimes people have the idea that Jesus did some and I make up the difference. You've heard maybe sermons where, where preachers have actually said that, that Jesus did such and such and such, but it's left to us to finish the job. I want to remind us this morning that Jesus, in fact, did it all. Every bit of it. Peter says to them, he says, repent. But that's not all he says. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Sign and symbol of being a believer. You may not realize this, but baptism was not a new concept to the Jewish people, the Jewish audience to which Jesus, uh, Peter was preaching. That for generations, the Jews had practiced what was called proselyte baptism. That, that, that when Gentiles actually became Jewish followers, they went through a process of baptism. And the purpose of it was basically to wash their Gentileness away from them.
What amazed this audience, because it was principally and primarily Jewish, was this, was, was, was that Peter was telling them that they needed to be baptized, and they weren't Gentiles. Well, we understand that most basically, baptism symbolizes the washing away of sin and its corruption. But that's not all of it. Let me read to you from the larger catechism, question number 165, where it says, what is baptism? And this is the answer. Baptism is the sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself. But that's not all. But also of remissions of sins. In other words, the sins are actually washed away. And also of regeneration by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling you and changing you. But also of adoption. It's a sign and seal that now you become, you were not a child of God, but now you are of the household of God. It's also a sign and seal of the resurrection to come. That we will experience if we die before Christ returns. It's also a sign of one being received as a member of the visible church of Jesus Christ in this world. I want to remind us this morning that all of these things are true, but at the same time, I want to remind us of something else, and that is that baptism doesn't actually save anybody. It never has. It's simply a sign and seal applied to believers and to their children. Those who received his word that day were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Now, we don't know how big the crowd was. That could, it could have been you know, 10% of all the people gathered there, or it could have been 99% of the people gathered there. We don't know. But we would all say that 3,000 converts in a single day due to a single sermon probably would be considered pretty effective and amazing. There are different means by which people come to faith in Christ. In a way. It is all spirit-led. It's all, all spirit-accomplished. But people have to hear the message. And there are different mechanisms or different approaches to presenting those things to people. Sometimes it's done on a one-to-one -one basis. Sometimes it's done in more of a group kind of thing. I think today that we live in a day where people begin to think that it's very common for there to be mass conversions and big evangelistic events. 
I mean, this is an example of it. 3,000 people that were there that day who were not believers in the morning, they were believers when the sun went down or whenever this took place. You've heard me use this illustration before, and you'll probably hear me use it again because it says it like nothing else might to me. Now, as many years ago, I went with my brother and our oldest son, Matthew, to an evangelistic event that went on for a couple of days. And the first night, the guy that preached was an evangelist, and, and basically... What he did was this. He wanted to prove a point. He wanted to demonstrate something to us, show us something that's very, very clear when you look at the practical reality of where people are. You need to understand that he was preaching to a crowd, for the most part, who were, was already converted. There were probably some unbelievers there, but they were probably people who were unbelievers who thought they might be a believer. But he said this, he said, all right, I want everyone in this room who, who came to faith uh, because of a worship service they attended to stand up. In other words, someone just invited in the church, they went, you know, so on, by the end of it, they were converted. How many people do you think stood up? Not many. Almost none. He said, okay, I want you guys to sit down, and now I want everyone uh, to stand up who came to faith through Jesus Christ when a stranger came to their door and presented the gospel to them. How many do you think? Not so many. More than before, but still not a whole lot. Then he said this, he said, okay, I want everyone in this room to stand up who came to faith when someone they knew shared the gospel with them and almost every man in the place stood up. Sometimes we think Pentecost is normative. In other words, it's the normal way in which people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the point I'm trying to make to you this morning is today where we are, it just simply is not. That the most effective way for winning people to Christ is through personal relationships with people and telling them about Jesus. That is what is working very most effectively in our day. which means that there's something that is required and asks of each one of us. And that is a willingness to share our faith with other people. Of realizing that the faith that Christ has given us is not just for me, myself, and I. It's to tell other people about. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, there's a sense in which we continue to do the same thing today, right? I mean, you do know this, that most of the epistles were written by the apostles. Plus Paul. The original apostles plus Paul. 
He was also an apostle. That we can say today that we continue today to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. How? Through the epistles they left us. There's a great deal that you and I know about Christ. There's a great deal that we know about the church. There's a great deal that we know about what it means to come to faith and stay in faith and etc. That doesn't come directly from the teaching of Jesus. but comes more directly from the teaching of the apostles. There's not a single book in the New Testament that not, is not simply a continuation of apostolic teaching. And one of the big things we should get from this picture, too, that Peter is painting in this sermon, that is that fellowship's important. The fellowship is a big part of life for virtually every believer. Now, there's some in some circumstances where Christians can't have fellowship. Simply because there are no other believers around them to share in that fellowship. But for the most part, there are always fellow believers around us. We need fellowship. We need to be part of a church body. So that we can be encouraged by the body, but at the same time, so we can be an encourager in the body. Fellowship is indeed a very big part of what being a believer is. Jesus does not want his children to exist in the world as islands unto themselves. There is power, there is strength. There is encouragement that comes only as we are members of a body or what we call a church like Springs Presbyterian. We strengthen one another. We build one another. And that's one of the pictures that's being painted here is this, this close fellowship that the early church shared with itself. We do not run our course all alone. We do it together. Hand in hand. I think we all would admit that there really is a strength in numbers that we would not have otherwise. Why are we members of uh, the Presbyterian Church in America? There's a number of reasons. One of those is these are churches that we agree with on a doctrinal level. At the same time, being part of the nomination offers us a level of fellowship that we would not have otherwise. Fellowship that goes beyond the doors of this building. Not only that, I hope that you know people. I hope that you have Christian friends who are not PCA people.
Christians are more than just friends or comrades. We are spiritual brothers and sisters. There are some churches where there's not a lot of fellowship. There's not a lot of stuff that goes on outside of what goes on Sunday morning. That's not true of this group of people here. I know it's not. There's a lot of interaction that takes place between many of you or most of you and other people in this room on a regular basis. We need that. We need that intimacy. But let me say to you this morning, it cannot be a closed intimacy. It needs to be an intimacy that we're willing and desiring to share with other people. It's very easy for churches our size to become ingrown. Matter of fact, that's the typical thing that happens. Turned in on itself. But that is not what Christ's calling is for us. We read here that all who believed were together and, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The world seems to be becoming more and more materialistic. And you know what? The church seems to be becoming more and more materialistic too. It's an area where it seems as though the church is following after the world. The value of people is often determined by what they have or who they know. That may be true out there, but it cannot, must not be true in here. I think some people come to the wrong conclusion that uh, the early church basically practiced a mandatory form of communalism whereby everyone's personal property became the property of the body. Now, to be clear, that is not what's taking place here. Obviously, some did take extraordinary steps to help provide for other members of the body. But they did it on a voluntary basis. They were not required to do it. Their stuff was not taken away from them and given to other people. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit that is what God wanted them to do, and they did it. But what they did, they didn't do by compulsion. They did it on a voluntary basis. And the truth is this, the Bible certainly does teach that God loves a cheerful giver. And that means giving in a number of different ways. We should be able to say that of all the places in the world 
The church is a place where materialism has no place. Our people are valued not based upon what they have or they do not have. A place where people are free to share whatever they wish to share with other members, but they are not obligated to do so. See, there is something that is required of us when it comes to things like this, and it's just simply generosity. We are to be generous people. Why? Because God has given us so much. How could we be anything else? God has given us so much freely, not out of obligation in any way, shape, or form. He is our model. As he is, we are to be as best as we can be. Fellowshipping with one another. I can't can't emphasize the importance of fellowship for fellow believers. I can't emphasize it enough. It's absolutely essential for every one of us. We have to have it. It's not a matter should we have it, do we want to have it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm telling you is it's an absolute necessity that we have it, all of us. Why are we having brunch after church this morning? We are having brunch today, right? Why? Just because people like to eat? It's because Riley and Nancy always bring really good food, or, you know, and other people do too. Or what, why do we do it? We do it not really so much for the food. Now, the food's kind of an added advantage, but we do it more for the fellowship that takes place around the dinner table than we do anything else. Right? Do you enjoy brunch? Do you like brunch? Is that something you take delight in? I, I think I can look on your faces and, and understand that at least the majority of you really do. And you understand that the food is part of it, but that's not the central thing. It's the fellowship that is important. That day, 3,000 souls were added. By who? By the Lord. Not by Peter. Not by those other folks. The Lord did it. Entirely, completely, and absolutely. He gets the credit. Are you called to be an evangelist? Some to a larger degree and some to a lesser degree, but you need to understand that every Christian is called to be an evangelist, absolutely every single one, no exceptions. 
And all that means is this, is you need to be willing, and not only willing, but desiring to tell other people what you know about Christ. Can you do that? There's something we always must remember, and that is this, is, and listen to me carefully now. You cannot change anybody's heart. You can try all you want to. You can do everything you can think of to make it happen, but you're spitting in the wind. Only God can change people's hearts. Those 3,000 people came to faith that day. Why? Because God saved them. He it says it right here. He did it. Not Peter. Not the other people. God added 3,000 souls that day. We understand that because we know this, that the human, fallen human heart has to be changed and we have not the power, ability, knowledge, understanding, or anything to do it. God saved those people. Not Peter, not anybody else in the room, but the Lord himself saved these people at Pentecost. He is the only one who can change the fallen human heart. Until that happens. There's no hope of anybody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. See, we talk about people who are evangelists and etc. But what I want to say to you more this morning is the Holy Spirit is the great and ir- the only irresistible evangelist. When we share the gospel with someone and they come to faith, let me tell you something. You, don't deserve, you want to pat yourself on the back? You want to tell other people about, well, let someone say to Christ this week. You can't lead yourself to Christ, much less to anybody else. God always gets not just a little credit, Not just 50% of the credit, not just 75% of the credit, but absolutely 100% of the credit every single time. We've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit over the last few weeks. And I just want to ask this question this morning. Do you think that sometimes we can get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is doing? Let me just read a few passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, you always what? You always resist the Holy Spirit. Don't try to put God in a box. 
will fail. Not just sometimes, but every time. I want to remind us of something this morning, and that is this, and that is this is his show. He can do whatever he wishes with whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes, and he owes no one an explanation for any of it. Today, as we speak, the Lord continues to add to the number of those who are being saved every day. And we have every reason, every confidence to understand that he will continue to do that until that real landmark event takes place that we call the second coming of Christ. So how should we feel after we consider all these things this morning? One thing I'd say is this, is there should be real joy in us. A joy that comes in knowing that we are part of all of this. By God's doing, not by our own doing. And still, there's a sinful part of us that demands that we have to take some degree of credit for for gaining our salvation. After all, we did make that decision for Christ at some point, right? Right? But I want to say to you this morning, you, there's no credit for you at all. None. Not one whit. God did everything necessary to save you. You contributed absolutely nothing. Simply because... He loves you that much.